According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 15. We're coming down to the bottom part of the chapter. It's got 33 verses. We've covered uh, 21 of them, I guess, or 20 of them. We're dealing with... uh, lacking heart in verse 21 and uh, we'll cover that under point 15 and then we'll move on to verse 22 with the counselors without consultation plans are frustrated but with many counselors they succeed all right so we'll deal with that first though we're going to talk about folly folly is joy to him who lacks sense but a man of understanding walks straight Before we get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, a very important time for us to set aside our distractions, to humble ourselves, to ask for the Father's blessing on our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. We thank you for your grace provision, Father, that allows for us to be here on this day. We uh, call upon your faithfulness, Father, to hedge us about and protect us, hinder anyone that would want to bring us to harm or stop what we're doing this morning. Father, uh, thank you for the, uh, the many blessings that you pour forth. We call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding and the ears of our hearing, Father, that we would uh, be led in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last week we were centering on the hedges, and so that was uh, point 13 in the outline. We Basically, we give a new outline for each chapter as we come to it, so this is our outline for chapter 15. And the idea on hedges, hedges can do one of two things. Hedges can be great, or hedges can be a problem. And uh, God can use hedges defensively, protectively, to keep enemies from attacking you, as we learn in the book of Job, as we learn in uh, Psalms and Isaiah, that hedges are a, a refuge. That if he puts a protective hedge around you, that's a blessing. But then if he lowers that hedge, then you're under God's discipline, as is in the case when he lowers the hedge around Jerusalem and he allows the enemies to come in and attack. There's also a negative use of hedges that God will use as a divine discipline uh, factor. If you are indeed off the path, uh, he will put a hedge in your way. And that's his grace as well, uh, by, by virtue of the fact that he honors our volition. And when we, when we plunge into reversionism or we decide that we're going to turn to the left or the right, and we're not going to run with endurance the race that's set before us, if we decide we're going to run off on our own course and do our own thing, Uh, God allows us to do that. He does not coerce our volition. However, he's also very faithful to put a nasty thorny hedge right in that path. And so if we insist on staying on that road, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. We're going to have to bust our way through that hedge and grumble about it and complain about it. Well, if we weren't on that path in the first place, then uh, that wouldn't have happened. And so the hindering of progress for those walking in darkness, I think, is another interesting study as well. And so we, we dealt with that. I also shared my Hedgeway story from the Scrabble glories of, of a year ago, and I won't put that picture back up there again, but that's where we were a week ago. We also talked about honoring parents, and uh, the aspect here in verse 20, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. And we realize that this, when you have the contrast of a son versus a man, we realize that we're, we're spanning the generation here, that uh, uh, honoring parents does not stop when a child becomes an adult, that uh, you, uh, even though you're no longer under their authority, even though you're no longer under their house, you have left father and mother, you're cleaving to one another, the two become one flesh in your own generational accountability. Nevertheless, the expectation to honor your father and mother continues. It never stops. It doesn't stop when you're an adult, and it doesn't stop when they're in heaven either as well, because you continue to honor them, uh, honor their memory after they've gone, and uh, we have the, uh, the things there. And so this was actually a repeat from a class we had done back in chapter 10, and uh, looked at some of those, uh, those proverbs then. So, which takes us now to main point 15, the idea of lacking heart. It is an idiom that we don't always understand, um, doesn't necessarily relate, uh, but we try to communicate it as it was used in the uh, Old Testament. 
When it says lacking sense in verse 21, the actual term is lave. It's the Hebrew term for heart. And the expression lacking heart uh, happens 11 times throughout Proverbs, and it's pretty clear what uh, the idiom's dealing with. And I'm not really, um, I'm not being critical of the English translation for lacking sense, but because um, I think it, it does communicate, but I, I would prefer to leave it as lacking heart. And I would prefer to hopefully for ourselves come to recognize what's the heart damage we do when we're walking in darkness. What, what effects do we have on our heart, on the innermost part of our being, the core of who we are? I believe we do damage to our heart when we are in prolonged darkness. And the scripture describes that. And so what happens then through prolonged heart damage is we end up with a diminished capacity. And that's what we have here in lacking heart. And so we have the, uh, the issue there. All right. So uh, this has been seen eight times before. And uh, we're going to have it two more times in the book of Proverbs. And so we can see these for what they are. Spend some time in it here this morning. And for the eight we've already had, this will be a refresher for you. Back to Proverbs chapter 6, and we'll see these. I think the sadness is, is that every time we encounter this, we are reminded of how unnecessary it is, how uh, tragic it is, because there's no real reason for it other than our own hardness of heart, our own darkness that's uh, making wrong choices. Um, so Proverbs 6 and verse 22 and right away I'm seeing, I probably have a typo there. Huh. Okay, well, we'll find another one then. It's been seen eight times before, and it's not Proverbs 6.22. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, the teaching is a light. Uh, well, my apologies. I thought I had double-checked all these. Is it 32? Yes, it's 32. Thank you. My apologies. Yeah. More proof. All right. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. That is lacking heart. He would destroy him. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. And so I understand in the English translation here uh, that the adulterer is lacking sense. I get it. It's it's stupid. Why do such a thing? However. It's more than just poor decision-making. It's more than just uh, a sense issue. More than just, uh, you know, you've got to come to your senses. It's a heart issue. And it does speak to the diminishment. The idea of lacking is speaks of a diminishment, a decreased capacity. And so uh, in lacking lave or lavav, in lacking the heart, we see this. And, and I don't find it as a bad translation at all. The one who commits adultery with woman is deficient in his heart. He who would destroy himself does it. So we see that there's actual impact that happens. It's personally harmful. You are damaging yourself to the point of destruction. And anytime you see a brother or a sister that's pursuing a course of uh, what I call a death style, it is self-destructive behavior. It is not an alternative lifestyle. It is actually a death style because it is self-destructive. And so I, uh, I prefer the actual rendering of lacking heart or deficient in heart capacity. He who would destroy himself does it. And that's the use there. All right, thank you for finding verse 32. Now we'll find the next typo as we attempt chapter 7, verse 7. Oh, there it is. All right. And uh, again, the, uh, these are in the early chapters of parental wisdom that we taught back in the day where we talk about how parents are just begging and pleading their children to make right decisions, to not make the destructive decisions, in particular when the child reaches this age whereby he can start to fail in these sexual areas, 
then that means that the child starts to reach the, the point of time that poor decisions will have lifelong consequences. And so this then becomes a, a bigger deal than just you know spanking a little toddler for, for committing a sin or doing something wrong. These are the sins that will have a lifelong impact if in fact uh, our brothers and sisters or our, our children uh, fail in this regard. So, um, my son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live, and my teaching is the apple of your eye. That is, live the abundant life. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend. If you're properly oriented to doctrine, then uh, you're actually setting yourself up marvelously for the right kind of relationships, because you have a right kind of relationship with the Lord. You have a right kind of relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a right kind of relationship, and so you're not maladjusted on friendships, and you're not maladjusted on intimacy, because uh, you can see those intimate terms there. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend. If you have the right orientation to intimacy, you don't get fooling around with this other garbage. That they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. And then here comes the illustration. At the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice and I saw among the naive and I discerned among the youths a young man deficient in heart, lacking sense. And uh, passing through the street near her corner and he takes the way to her house. And so this is in the wrong part of town and he's going to the wrong corner, but he knows the corner he wants to go to and he's there. He takes the way to her house. He didn't have to go that way, but he chose to go that way because that leads him to the wrong part of town and it leads him to the door of her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. This knucklehead had to go by four separate times before he finally uh, ran into this woman that he was trying to catch all along. And behold, the woman comes out to meet him. Oh, well, what do you know? What a coincidence, not. You went by four different times hoping to find this girl. Dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. And uh, another uh, heart idiom there, cunning of heart, while he is deficient in heart. And uh, anyway, it's a pretty ugly chapter, and she seduces him, not like it was twisting his arm very hard. And he doesn't realize, when you get all the way down to verse 21, With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. And this is the damage that we do. It's destructive to the soul. It's destructive to the body and uh, the aspects there. All right, chapter 9 more lacking heart. And it's curious, if you are lacking heart, if you have a heart deficiency, God's made provision for that. It's called doctrine. The Word of God. Being with brothers and sisters under teaching. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. What a marvelous palace. It's called the Bible. The Word of God. Live dwelling in the things of the Lord. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. And here's what she calls out in verse 4. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense or is deficient of heart, she says, Come, eat of my food. Drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live. That is, live the abundant life that the Word of God supplies. They're already physically alive. You don't tell somebody that's already physically alive to live, but living in the sense of truly living, living for the glory of Jesus Christ, living the abundant life. Forsake your folly and live. And so there's wisdom giving her invitation to the one lacking heart. The provision is the Word of God. Wisdom. Down to verse 16, this other woman. And notice how the words are identical. The woman of folly is boisterous. And so here's the antithesis of the Word of God. 
Here is Satan's mechanisms to get believers' eyes off of truth. And um, she's boisterous. She's naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by who are making their path straight. Why is she not content with, you know, other sinners or unbelievers or other people that are walking the crooked path to begin with? Why is she targeting the, the, the chump that's trying to walk the straight and narrow? See, because that's what she does. That's what Satan does. That's what, you know, it's no fun to seduce someone that's already walking in darkness, but it's a real delight for the adversary to take somebody out of the Word of God. And so, um, calling out to those who pass by who are making their paths straight, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. <laughs> and, you know, it's like word for word, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who, ha who lacks understanding, she says, now here's where it gets different, to him who's heart deficient, she says, stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Oh, come on, it'll be fun. It's exciting. Live a little. Break the rules. And um, he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. And uh, you can find yourself in operational death, pursuing a uh, death style. And uh, there's no good ending to that. All right, so that's 916. Those, now those early chapters, that's in the parental wisdom section. Remember, chapters 1 through 9 are geared towards uh, parents that are inculcating values to their children. When we get to chapter 10, it's a new context. And it's even like the book starts all over again with the Proverbs of Solomon, right? We have a new, a fresh introduction to the book. There's another one that happens in chapter 25. But so we take this as a unit now. Sections 10 through 24 are a unit, and these are geared towards adults. These are geared towards personal and public wisdom, whereby now you're no longer under your, your parental umbrella. You're now standing before the Lord in your own integrity, in your own wisdom. And so 10.13 and 10.21 address the weak heart or the deficient heart. Um, on the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found. But a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. And uh, him who lacks sense. That, um, as a cultural issue, we, uh, we don't do well with this. We... Uh, we live in a post. We live in a very postmodern world. We live in a very um, sensitive day and age. The idea that, uh, in fact, we live in a world now that rejects corporal discipline even for children. That they think that if you spank your child, you're you're issuing child abuse, or uh, and then so they don't they no longer do it in the public schools. They no longer do it. You can still do it in your home without going to prison. But I'm wondering how much longer that's going to last. So as hypersensitive as our culture is, does it shock you? We talked about this. Does it shock you that corporate, corporal discipline, bodily, physical discipline, was actually quite common in the history of our nation? Going back, and I'm not talking about slavery. That was a different issue. But within the military, you would have lashes within, as for army discipline, for navy discipline, even for public crime. There was the stocks. There were lashes uh, that could be issued by a judge. And, and then, like I say, of course, the slavery issue was, was beyond all the rest of that. And then to me, I think those things started to go away uh, for different, different reasons, not all of them uh, right. Anyway, this talks about, though, discipline for an adult uh, miscreant, an adult criminal, an adult uh, issue. And uh, I believe I can prove it. it's going to happen again in the millennium that there's going to be discipline in the millennium, including executions, including corporal discipline, including um, perfect justice with uh, Jesus Christ seated on the throne of David. Anyway, that's verse 13 of chapter 10. Verse 21 also, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of understanding. Fools die for the heart deficiency, the diminished heart capacity. So it's a problem. And it's an unnecessary problem. If you've got a diminished heart capacity, humble yourself and get back under teaching. That's what's going to build you up in the faith and strengthen you in the inner man. That's what's going to, uh, that's what's going to encourage your heart and brighten the eyes and everything else that Proverbs talks about. 
Proverbs 11.12, he who despises his neighbor lacks sense, has diminished heart capacity, but a man of understanding keeps silent. And this is how to be a good neighbor, a good uh, citizen, how to support your community. This is actually a marvelous wisdom application that benefits um, uh, uh, your, your whole society. It's a good civics lesson. Hmm. Right now we've got a huge scandal going on in my neighborhood that because uh, the school year just started and uh, apparently somebody just moved in. I don't even know this person. We've got a very active Facebook group in our neighborhood and they're constantly complaining about off-leash dogs and, uh, you know, punks of the park and other, other kind of things. Um, but yesterday in the Facebook neighborhood Facebook group, somebody was just absolutely livid that their kid went to this school and they said the Pledge of Allegiance. And they said... How long has that been going on? And, and what do we got to do to stop that? Why do they do that? You know, and they were pretty, uh, pretty upset that it, they felt like it was brainwashing. They were forcing kids to recite some kind of a, some kind of an allegiance to the country kind of a thing. And that was just outrageous. Why should they be have any kind of allegiance to this country? This country is terrible. And so 500 comments later, I mean, the whole neighborhood just jumped on. Sadly, though, it was pretty evenly split. And there was a large vocal component that said the flag has to be gone, there's no saluting the flag, there is no Pledge of Allegiance, there, and, and that there should be no loyalty to America because we've got immigrants and we've got non-Americans that, that are here kind of a thing. So anyway, all of that is to illustrate, pray for our country <laughs> and pray um, you know, a civic lesson about how to be a good neighbor. I think citizenship is a marvelous thing that should be taught more and more. The values of freedom, the values of liberty, the founding of our nation, and uh, to promote uh, uh, civic involvement, to promote voting, to promote uh, all kinds of things. And uh, the Pledge of Allegiance is geared towards that. Anyway, so also um, other things you can do to not uh, despise your neighbor. That's 11, 12. Finally then, 12, 1, or 12, 11. He who uh, tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things is of a diminished heart capacity, lacks sense. And so uh, hard work pays off, and the pursuit of folly has uh, consequences. If a man will not work, neither let him eat, we're told in the New Testament. And, uh, and, and worse than that, worse than just not having an income and not having a livelihood, you're actually damaging your soul. Your, your slothful, uh, folly attitude actually is, is diminishing your heart capacity. You're doing heart damage by pursuing that, that frivolous, folly way of, uh, of existence. And uh, that's, uh, I think that's undeniable. So those are the uh, eight times we've already seen the expression prior to chapter 15. Uh, there can be two more times coming up, both in the same section before we get to the transition in chapter 25. So uh, 1718 will be our next time we encounter this. A man in lacking in sense pledges and becomes guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. And again, I think the translation comes if I back up here um, to verse 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. A man lacking heart, deficient in heart, pledges and becomes guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. And I understand that you can render it lacking sense just because it's a stupid thing to do. But I think there's more involved than just doing something stupid. And then with all of these passages and all of these instances, I think we're actually seeing the diminished heart capacity. We're seeing the damage that's done when the attitude is not right. And so lacking in sense, diminished heart. That uh, you would do something you wouldn't do otherwise because you've got heart damage. And uh, that, to me, that, that does uh, make sense. Well, we'll deal with that in chapter 17. Finally then, chapter 24 and verse 30. So think about it. How many times do you make a poor decision? And beyond the fact that it's stupid, you knew it was stupid, but you did it anyway. Even though it was stupid, why did you do it anyway, even though it was stupid? Because of a diminished heart capacity. 
because of a soul damage, because of um, a compromise that's made uh, in spite of what you know to be the truth. All right, then the final one is 2430. I passed by in the field of a sluggard by the vineyard of the man of diminished heart capacity, lacking sense. So not that he's just dumb. It's not that he's, he's just lazy. And he's damaged his own soul. He has a hurt his heart. Remember, the, the, the Word of God is uh, able to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to that dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. That innermost part of your being you need to be, uh, that, uh, that inner man needs to be renewed day by day. And when it's not, this is what happens. If you're not renewing your mind, this is what happens. You end up with a diminished heart capacity and uh, several consequences there. All right, so that takes it, that's pretty much right there at the uh, conclusion of 10 through 24. The whole context of the sluggard and the man lacking sense is 30 down through verse 34. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. <laughs> the original snooze alarm. Just one more, five more minutes, Mom. Just five more minutes. All right. And then you notice in chapter 25, a new segment of uh, Proverbs begins. The collection that Hezekiah added to the canon. So, um, I don't know. The Lockman Foundation had their reasons. Uh, seven times they rendered it as lacking sense. Four times they rendered it as lacking understanding. I would just as soon leave it as lacking heart or diminished heart each time and, uh, and take it from there. All right, so back to our chapter then, and we'll talk about counseling. We'll talk about counseling. Wisdom encourages consultation of counselors. As a timely word is a marvelous blessing. Let's start with that and then we'll finish the point. Such counsel may at times be disliked or even rejected. Uh, when the counsel's good, accept it. If the counsel's not so good, reject it. Ultimately speaking, you want to get input, you want to get perspectives, but regardless of the perspectives you get, if you ask enough people, you're going to get multiple different approaches. So then what do you do? You do the one you want to do in the first place. <laughs> and so you're just you're just finding uh you're just keep asking people until you find the one that tells you what you wanted to do in the first place and you go with that is that what we're saying no it's not what we're saying that's not what scripture says either but we have to be cautious when we are assembling counselors together what is the purpose for that counsel and what are we trying to achieve it is definitely driven towards the purpose of achievement and so uh let's look at it uh, Proverbs 15, 22. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Okay? And as a general principle, this is true. Are there exceptions? Of course. Like with everything else in Proverbs, Proverbs are giving us the general rule, how things normally operate, uh, all other things being equal. Uh, typically, uh, in, the, in the course of life, yes, this is the general rule of thumb. That's what, that's what Proverbs gives us. That uh, if you just... Do something uh, with your own wisdom and you forget to ask for help, uh, you may find uh, that there was something you didn't think about that thwarted the whole endeavor. Um, however, if you stop ahead of time and plan it out and get some help and get some guidance, and then you engage in that course of action, uh, generally speaking, then those are the plans that tend to work out better. And that's, that's true. That's true in every field of life. That's true in military pursuits. That's true in economic pursuits. It's true in, in spiritual pursuits. That's true as a general rule of, uh, of, of wisdom application, as we see it here. And we've seen it before. We've seen it in chapter 11. Uh, where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in the abundance of counselors, there is victory. And so as a general rule of thumb, if, uh, if, if nobody clues you into anything and you're just kind of winging it or trying to figure it out yourself, that doesn't tend to go too well. But in an abundance of counselors, if you've had parents that have raised you in the Word of God, if you've had a pastor that's taught you the Word of God, if you've had older brothers and sisters that have mentored you in the Word of God, well then, generally speaking, 
all other things being equal, uh, your outcome is going to have a, a better uh, outcome, better success than the, the brother or the sister that's just winging it without any kind of guidance, without any kind of counsel of any sort. That's the, uh, that's the principle there. Proverbs 20, verse 18. Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. Okay. Makes sense to me. <laughs> you know, anything that you're planning, whatever you're planning, you're planning to get married someday, you're planning to have kids, you're planning to retire, you're planning, I mean, whatever it is you're planning. Um, first of all, we recommend planning <laughs> versus not planning, you know, versus just winging it and seeing what happens. So yeah, make a plan. And then as you're making the plan, remember that you're not by yourself on this planet. You're not by yourself. Uh, there's, there's people that you can consult, as I say, older brothers, older sisters, believers with wisdom, depending on uh, the kind of plan. And, and, you know, if it's a war plan, I recommend you uh, get guidance from uh, somebody with war experience. You know, you want military advisors. You don't want, you don't want uh, <laughs> Ivy League socialist utopia idiots that, that, that have no military background at all. Um, you know, if, uh, if, if you want uh, guidance on child raising, uh, you're going to talk to people that have raised kids or people that have never had kids. You know, you're going to talk to some academic theoretician that uh, has never raised a child. You know, who, who are you going to talk to? You know, who are you going to go to for marriage advice? Um, different things there. Anyway, I think it's pretty easy to illustrate these kind of aspects. Um, Proverbs 24, 6. For by wise guidance... You will wage war, and in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Similar to what we saw back in chapter 11. With an abundance of counselors. Now, why is it that these Proverbs are in the Bible? And why is it that I can't find the Bible verse that says, uh, too many cooks spoil the soup, right? Or too many chefs spoil the broth, or whatever. You know the proverb I'm talking about? As an, as an expression, and it probably comes from Ben Franklin or somebody, I don't know where it comes from, but it's not in the Bible. If it is in the Bible, I can't find it. <laughs> um, so, there is a truth to be found in such an idiom, um, that, and, and we can appreciate that for what it is. Uh, however, we want to be cautious in, in saying, well, wait a minute, what about the Proverbs that say, more counselors, the better? The more counselors, the better. So how is it that the Bible is true and we don't end up with too many cooks spoiling the soup? So how do we, how do we balance this? Or how do we understand this? Can you have too many counselors? Can there be too many? Well, does Proverbs indicate yes or no? It says an abundance. How many is an abundance? And how many is more than an abundance? <laughs> Super abundance. Too many. Stop. Well, let's ask ourselves this too, though. What is it we're hoping to use these counselors for? When you get counsel, I don't care if you get counsel from one person, two people, five people. When you are getting counsel, you're not, here's what you're not doing. You're not asking other people to make your choices for you. You still have to make the choice yourself. Whether, whether you, know, you asked your parents, you asked your pastor, you asked whoever you asked. And maybe he gave you good wisdom. Maybe he gave you sound principles. He gave you a verse. He encouraged you. Or maybe he gave you nothing. He said, wow, I don't know. I've never seen that before, but I'll pray for you. <laughs> okay, great. I love that. And because I'm not looking for you to tell me what to do. I'm looking for you to... I'm looking for us to fellowship in the Scriptures. I'm looking for us to be like-minded as we look to the Lord. Ultimately, my counselors come from Scripture. It's the Bible verses that are my counselors in any event. Um, and, and it's also, it's not a poll. 
I'm not, I'm not taking votes. Well, four people said to marry this person. Five people said to marry that person. Um, you know, man, that's real close. I don't know which girl to marry. Really? You can't be making decisions based on, you know, a poll that you take of, of your closest friends. You stand before the Lord. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Your own conviction. And it may be that you've got a, a, an older brother, you've got a pastor. I've got older pastors, and I dearly love these men. I respect them, and I revere them. But on occasion, they've given me some counsel that I've not taken. And sometimes I've regretted it, and sometimes I've been thankful. But the point is, is that when you get your counsel, when you make these plans, you still make your own choices as unto the Lord. And you face those consequences as unto the Lord. That's the personal one-on-one accountability. And I want to make sure we're clear on that. All right. And so, um, there is that. And, and the reason why wisdom is a great encouragement uh, is because a timely word is a marvelous blessing. Boy, at just the right time. And sometimes the person who gives that timely word doesn't realize they're doing it. <laughs> It's like a, the hand of God is in that conversation and the person was clueless, had no idea. But it becomes timely the way the Holy Spirit makes use of it. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a, just a sweet thing to watch as it happens. And so um, our next verse, after the uh, verse 22, is kind of a tandem here. Verse 23, a man has joy in an apt answer. And how delightful is a timely word. Wow. Okay. You know, somebody sent me a text and, and they actually sent it last Thursday, but it finally arrived this morning. How does that happen? What do these glitches happen with T-Mobile and whatever the, you know, whatever. Um, but God is so sovereign in what he does. At the moment that text arrived was exactly when it needed to arrive. And you go, wow. Yeah, last Thursday I probably would have gotten mad over that, but this is, I needed it now. So what do you know? <laughs> All right. So trust in those things. An apt answer and a timely word. 16.3. Commit your works to the Lord. Oh, 16.13, I'm sorry. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. Not the yes man, not telling you what you want to hear, telling you what you need to hear, telling you the truth telling you what is in accordance with God's absolute standard of righteousness. And that's, uh, I think that's where love really gets expressed. Love does not take pleasure in unrighteousness, but, right, but rejoices in the truth. If you tell somebody what he wants to hear, even though it's not true, that is evil. That is not agape love. So that's 16.13. 2426. A lot of this comes in chapter 24. You notice that? He kisses the lips who gives a right answer. <laughs> well, yeah. I tell you. Sometimes, uh, so there's a good blessing that comes upon them. To those who rebuke the wicked will be delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. He kisses the lips who gives a right answer. Sometimes, you know, someone just offers you the biggest encouragement in the world, the best answer, the apt answer. And, oh man, just God bless you. I want to hug you. Can I hug you? I don't, I'm not a hugger, but you know, it's just, it, it evokes that response, right? As the idiom says here, he kisses the lips. Wow. And there's just such a joyful response and a, and a blessing then. Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, there you go. Uh, chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. This is in the collection that Hezekiah put together 200 years after Solomon. And yet they're Solomon's Proverbs. They just weren't compiled into the canon during Solomon's lifetime. Not until the days of Hezekiah were these then compiled and added to the canon. Uh, like apples of gold in settings of silver. That sounds fun. Is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. 
shows here too why you want counselors, you want the right kind of counselors, you want brothers and sisters, they're going to be speaking the truth in love. If you want a New Testament example of this, it's Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. But only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So yes, this is what we have. Wisdom encourages consultation of counselors as a timely word is a marvelous blessing. Now, having said all that, understand there is a flip side. Understand the counsel may not be good um, if, and it may be disliked. In fact, it may even be rejected. And it can be disliked for right reasons or wrong reasons. It can be rejected for right reasons or wrong reasons. And this is why you've got to have your own discernment. Because, like I said, if you ask two people, they may give you two different answers, and then now what do you do? You have to make your choice as unto the Lord. Join me, if you would, in First uh, Samuel 29. and We'll take a look at this. This is one of the more interesting stories in the whole Life of David series. I was looking for my notes the other day. Pastor Cliff was asking me if I had these notes, and I don't. There's a, there is a PDF on the website, and there was a notebook printed a long, long time ago, but I don't have a Word document version of this, and I don't think I was even using Microsoft Word back in those early years. Um, I think I was using Works, Microsoft Works, and uh, those files got corrupted a long time ago. So anyway, at some point, I'd like to redo those notes. I'd like to reteach the, the Life of David material. But Saul is still king here at this point, and David's a, a renegade. He's, uh, he's on the run. He's a, um, and he's gathered, the Lord has sent to him a lot of other disgruntled type folks, and he finds himself now the captain of a, of a, a mercenary band. And uh, as a captain of a mercenary band, he um, actually uh, gets hired out and gets uh, a contract with uh, a Philistine commander. And uh, that might seem weird because David is pretty odious in the sight of the Philistines. He, you know, he killed the biggest one. And, uh, and yet, um, this is not all that unusual in the ancient world. Mercenary bands would sometimes fight on both sides depending on who was paying the highest and there were different things uh, that would happen there. But when you, we look at this, uh, the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek while the Israelites were camping by the spring, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands. And uh, this is generally understood to be the five leaders. There were five Philistine cities, each one with their own lord. And uh, they had their military broken down here into their companies and their battalions, we would say. And David and his men were proceeding on in the rear with Achish. And the commanders uh, of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or rather these years? And I have found no fault in him from the day he deserted me to this day. And he's been a faithful servant. And he was you know, useful in other campaigns. He was useful against the Amalekites. He was useful against other people. But now the war is being turned against Saul, against Israel, against the Jewish people. And the other Philistine commanders are nervous. Because now, you know, here's David, he's Jewish, and his men are Jewish, and... and uh, What's going to happen in the thick of combat, especially if they're, you, know, you have them here guarding the rear echelon, what if they, uh, what if they stab us in the back while uh, the battle's hot and heavy up front? So it's a concern. And now the, the consultation's coming together, and they're, ha <clears throat> they're having their, you know, the general staff is getting together, putting their war plans together, and they're saying, uh, this is a problem. This mercenary band is, uh, is, is, is we've got to get them out of here. Send them home. Okay. Like when we were in Desert Storm and we, uh, <laughs> the, the coalition forces were all lined up and we're getting every, all the forces in place. And, and uh, 
American forces, British forces, French forces, Saudi forces, Syrian forces. At that time, Syria was, was with us. Egyptian forces. Did I say Egyptian yet? Egyptian forces. And uh, this was what the Desert Shield thing was all about. And uh, telling Saddam Hussein he had to get out of Kuwait. You know, get out or we'll, we'll get you out kind of a thing. And, um, and so we're positioning all the forces there. And that was my, my company was in charge of that. We were the MPs that were doing all the, the positioning of the troops, taking them in from the port and getting them out to the desert and positioning them where they were going to be when the ground war would start. Okay. But then Saddam started threatening Israel, and then some of the other Arab nations started saying, well, if the Jews jump in, if, the, if Israel gets involved, we're switching sides. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> All right. So, okay, now we got some friends, we got some allies, and now we're starting to wonder about the Syrians, about the Egyptians, about the Jordanians, about the Saudis. And so, well, if you have allies that you're not too sure about, where do you want them? Yeah, you got to be careful, right? Keep your friends close, your enemies closer. I mean, what do you do? Anyway. So the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? We're going to war against the Hebrews. We've got Hebrews on our side. This could be a problem. And Acre said to the, this is almost comedy. Acre said to the commanders of the Philistines, what are you talking about? This is David. To which they reply, exactly. This is David. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the servant of Saul this is the guy that killed Goliath. Remember him? The commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, said to Achish, make the man go back that he may return to his place where you have assigned him. He had kind of a headquarters at Ziklag. So go back to Ziklag. Um, Do not let him go down to the battle with us or in the battle he may become an adversary to us. For with what could this man make himself acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men? So he could get back in Saul's good graces if he, uh, if he killed all of us. Is this not David of whom they sing in the dances, saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? Yeah, that was it. That was the song. That was the number one hit on the Billboard Top you know, charts. And uh, that's why Saul was mad and was kicking, kicking David out of there. And uh, the Philistines had the same, uh, same top ten music charts. This is him. They sing songs about this guy. Get him out of here. So Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives. What an expression. That's the expression of a vow, of an oath, of an adjuration. This is the expression of a believer that understands the living God. The living God by the name of Yahweh. As Yahweh lives, you have been upright. And you're going out and you're coming in with me in the army are pleasing in my sight. I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of the Lord's. Now therefore, return and go in peace that you may not displease the Lord's of the Philistines. And David says to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day when I came before you to this day that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of my Lord the king? And David's objection is curious to me, and I think God very graciously is overruling. This is the overruling will of God that's not putting David in a spot where he would be um, killing his own, his own men and fighting against Yahweh. But Achish replied to David, I know that you are pleasing in my sight like an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he must not go up with us to the battle. So arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord, who have come with you, and as soon as you have arisen early in the morning and have light, depart. So that's what he did. David arose, he and his men, to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So anyway, interesting. So there may be times that the council is not liked, the council is disliked. Achish didn't like what the other guys were telling him. David didn't like what Achish was telling him. And uh, there you go. Sometimes it can even be rejected. Numbers 14. And if you're turning counsel into a beauty pageant or to a popularity contest or to a democratic vote, I've got to tell you, almost every vote I can find in the Bible is, is wrong. 
you know, if you want to find democracy in the Bible somewhere, find where popular opinion made a vote. And you'll find that uh, ten spies vote, outvoted two spies and said, let's go back to Egypt. Or you find that uh, the popular opinion said, release Barabbas, crucify the Christ. You've got lots of examples where majority rule is, uh, is not the will of God. Numbers 14, 1 through 4. All the congregation lifted up their voice. This is when they, they spy out the land in chapter 13, and everything is great. Everything God said was there was there. Flowing with milk and honey, fruit, wealth, everything. Also, giants. <laughs> Oops. Okay, now God didn't mention the giants, but everything he did mention was there, just like he said. And then there's also giants. These Nephilim are in the land. So that's how chapter 13 ends. We saw the Nephilim, these men of great size, these gigantes in the Greek, gigantes, giants. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. We became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. And so all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not have been better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And so if, if the counsel you're being given uh, is something you don't like, then get rid of them. Get better counsel. Get different counsel. Listen to the guys that tell you what you want to do, and then go do it. That's their strategy, and that's uh, sad, because it's rebellion against the Lord. Uh, how about when you know the right thing to do, but the counsel you're being given is off track? John 7, 1 through 9. Jesus' brothers are giving him bad advice. And uh, they're not even saved, but they've got all these opinions about how he could boost his ministry. <clears throat> got uh, like my wife's uncle Bob he's always he's <clears throat> with the Lord now but he always had opinions about how I could get a bigger church and what I could do to get more, pe more people to come to church and uh, <clears throat> never did convince him that my main purpose in life is not to get more people to come to church my main purpose in life is to shepherd the people who do come to church to uh, shepherd the flock of God and I'm not really you know, dedicated to self-promotion and those things there. And then, but this is what his brothers were all about. The feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near, and therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you were doing. No one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. In other words, Galilee is too, too uh, rural. It's too, uh, you know, you're not on the global stage. You've got to go to the big city. Bright lights, big city, get better exposure. You know, Galilee is like, uh, you know, some backwater part of obscurity. And, and uh, what are you doing here in Galilee? Well, we were told uh, in verse 1, I didn't read, uh, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And uh, it's not time to die yet. So he had the early Judean ministry, he had the Galilean ministry, he'll have the Perean ministry, he'll have his final week in Jerusalem, and then he goes to the cross. Anyway, this Feast of Booths, this is six months out from the cross. This is in the fall of 32 AD. He will be dying on the cross in uh, the spring of 33. So it's within six months of the cross He's had three years of public ministry, the bulk of which has been in Galilee. And uh, his brothers said, this is small potatoes. You've got to get up there big time. And I think verse 5 tells it all, for not even his brothers were believing in him. <laughs> they don't get saved until after the resurrection. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. There's a difference. Believers and unbelievers, we look at things differently. We consider the will of God. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. 
Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast, to this feast, because my time had not yet fully come. And it's curious to me, so having said these things, he stayed in Galilee. So he rejects their advice, he rejects their counsel. And uh, he's obviously, he's been to this thing before. There's indications that he never misses this, that he's been there in previous years. There's um, little discussions that were happening uh, among the, the, the crowds. Well, where is he? Why isn't he here yet? And uh, evidently, he was his custom to come to this feast in, in previous years, but he's not coming to this one. He's not coming to this one, and it's not an opportune time, as he says, which leads us to wonder. Because this is the feast of glory. This is the feast where, in the millennium, Gentile kings are going to come and bring their treasures. They're going to bow down. They're going to worship him. They're going to, they're going to praise him. And if they don't, they get the rain turned off for the, the whole year, the following year, see. And so it's curious to me, the brothers want him to go make a big splash. And it's curious to me what, what the welcome wagon might have been. What was Satan ready to, to unload on day one? Because there was a crowd here with an expectation. And he skips out on day one. He, he comes up obscurely in the middle of the feast. It's a week-long feast. He comes up in the middle of the feast so that uh, he doesn't step into the trap that they had for him there. And it's curious to me. Anyway, if people are counseling you to do something and they've got false motivations for doing it, uh, take that with a grain of salt. What if they have the best motivation? They want only your best and they are giving you good advice. And they are speaking under prophetic utterance. <laughs> Acts 21, 7-14. This is the hardest of all. This is the hardest counsel of all when you have to say, nope, I'm not going to do it. Paul is uh, on his way to Jerusalem and everyone's trying to talk him out of it. And so in verse 7, they finish the voyage from Tyre. They arrive at Ptolemais and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And on the next day, we left and came to Caesarea. Remember, journeys in the ancient world took days and weeks. Entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who is one of the seven, we stayed with him. One of the very first deacons ever. This man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Yikes. <laughs> I only had two daughters. And that was, I'll take ten more sons before the next daughter. Um, but imagine if they were all prophetesses. Wow. It's hard enough staying two steps ahead of them. But if they're prophetesses? And as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down. Great guy. A true prophet. We've seen him before. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. So that, that includes Agabus, that includes Philip, that includes uh, the four virgin uh, prophetess daughters, that includes um, Paul's traveling companions, we as well as them. So this is Timothy, this is Luke, this is, uh, this is uh, the, 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 the traveling party that went with Paul from Ephesus to, uh, to Jerusalem. Includes even Trophimus, and includes... Uh, even uh, Demas. Demas had not abandoned him yet. He would be with this group. Then, well, so that seems pretty clear. The will of God, right? Agabus isn't a false prophet. He's a real prophet. He prophesied a famine and Paul and Barnabas went down to Jerusalem and brought some funds and brought some food. He's a good guy. He's four virgin prophetesses and all of this. But Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So the prophecy is, when you get there, you'll be bound. And Paul says, okay, I'm good with that. He wasn't disputing the prophecy, and he wasn't calling Agabus a false prophet. He accepted the validity of the prophecy, yes. 
But they were all taking it. If you go, you'll be bound, so don't go. Don't get bound. And Paul said, if I go, I'll get bound, but hey, I'm ready. Since he would not be persuaded. Now here's the key. I love this verse. i got to leave you with this. It's 11 o'clock. Since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. I wish more believers would use this instead of arguing for weeks on end. You say your peace, he says his peace. All right, we see it differently. God's will be done. God bless you. Okay, make your choice. I've said my bit. Um, make your choice. I'm going to stay, I'm going to fall silent. I've got nothing else to say. The will of the Lord be done. Father, I thank you for this message. I thank you for Proverbs. I thank you for the blessings of your truth. Uh, Father, just continue to open our eyes to see ways in which individually we can make applications, how uh, in our marriages and our families we can make applications, and how as a corporate body in our local church, how Austin Bible Church can make the applications that need to be made in, uh, in conformity to uh, the, the Word of God that you've made clear to us on this day. Father, I thank you and I praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All righty, folks.